Section 5 of the Heptameron of the Tales of Margaret, Queen of Navarre, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Heptameron of the Tales of Margaret, Queen of Navarre, Volume 1, by Margaret of Navarre. Translated by George Sainsbury. Section 5. On the Heptameron. Part 1. It is probable that every one who has had much to do with the study of literature has conceived certain preferences for books which he knows not to belong absolutely to the first order, but which he thinks to have been unjustly depreciated by the general judgment, and which appeal to his own tastes or sympathies with particular strength. One of such books in my own case is The Heptameron of Margaret of Navarre. I have read it again and again sometimes at short intervals, sometimes at longer, during the lapse of some five-and-twenty years since I first met with it. But the place which it holds in my critical judgment and in my private affections has hardly altered at all since the first reading. I like it as a reader, perhaps rather more than I esteem it as a critic, but even as a critic, and allowing fully for the personal equation, I think that it deserves a far higher place than is generally accorded to it. Three mistakes, as it seems to me, pervade most of the estimates, critical or uncritical, of the heptameron, the two first of old date, the third of recent origin. The first is that it is a comparatively feeble imitation of a great original, and that anyone who knows Boccaccio need hardly trouble himself to know Margaret of Navarre. The second is that it is a loose, if not obscene book, disgraceful for a lady to have written, or at least mothered and not very creditable for anyone to read. The third is that it is interesting, as the gossip of a certain class of modern newspapers is interesting, because it tells scandal about distinguished personages, and has for its interlocutors other distinguished personages, who can be identified without much difficulty, and the identification of whom adds zest to the reading. All these three seem to me to be mistakes of fact and of judgment. In the first place, the heptameron burrows from its original literally nothing but plan. Its stories are quite independent. The similarity of name is only a bookseller's invention, though a rather happy one, and the personal setting, which is in Boccaccio a mere framework, has here considerable substance and interest. In the second place, the accusation of looseness is wildly exaggerated. There is one very coarse, but not in the least immoral, story in the Heptameron. There are several broad jests on the obnoxious cloister and its vices. There are many tales which are not intended virginibus puerisque. And there is a pervading flavour of that half-French, half-Italian courtship of married women, which was at this time usual everywhere out of England. The manners are not our manners and what may be called the moral tone is distinguished by a singular cast, of which more presently. But if not entirely a book for boys and girls, the heptameron is certainly not one which Southey need have accepted from his admirable answer in the character of author of The Doctor, to the person who wondered whether he, Southey, could have daughters, and if so, whether they liked reading. He has daughters, they love reading, and he is not the man I take him for if they are not allowed to open any book in his library. The last error, if not so entirely inconsistent with intelligent reading of the book as the first and second, 
is scarcely less strange to me. For, in the first place, the identification of the personages in the framework of the Heptameron depends upon the merest and, as it seems to me, the idlest conjecture, and, in the second, the interests of the actual tittle-tattle, whether it could be fathered on A or B or not, is the least part of the interest of the book. Indeed, the stories altogether are, as I think, far less interesting than the framework. Let us see, therefore, if we cannot treat the heptameron in a somewhat different fashion from that in which any previous critic, even St. Beuve, has treated it. The divisions of such treatment are not very far to seek. In the first place, let us give some account of the works of the same class which preceded and perhaps patterned it. In the second, let us give an account of the supposed author, of her other works, and of the probable character of her connection with this one. In the third, without attempting dry argument, let us give some sketch of the vital part which we have called the framework, and some general characteristics of the stories. And, in the fourth and last, let us endeavour to disengage that peculiar tone, flavour, note, or whatever word may be preferred, which, as it seems to me at least, at once distinguishes the heptameron from other books of the kind, and renders it peculiarly attractive to those whose temperament and taste predisposes them to be attracted. For there is a great deal of pre-established harmony in literature and literary tastes, and I have a kind of idea that every man has his library marked out for him when he comes into the world, and has then only got to get the books and read them. Margaret herself refers openly enough to the example of the Decameron, which had been translated by her own secretary, Antony Le Masson, a member of her literary coterie, and not improbably connected with the writing or redacting of the Heptameron itself. Nor were later Italian tale-tellers likely to be without influence at a time when French was being Italianated in every possible way, to the great disgust of some Frenchmen. But the Italian ancestors or patterns need not be dealt with here, and can be discovered with ease and pleasure by anyone who wishes, in the drier pages of Dunlop, or in the more flowery and starry pages of Mr. Simmons' History of the Renaissance in Italy. The next few pages will deal only with the French tale-tellers, whose productions before Margaret's days were, if not very numerous, far from uninteresting, and whose influence on the slight difference of genre which distinguishes the tales before us from Italian tales was by no means slight. In France, as everywhere else, prose fiction, like prose of all kinds, was considerably later in production than verse, and short tales of the kind before us were especially postponed by the number, excellence, and popularity of the verse fabliaux. Of these, large numbers have come down to us, and they exactly correspond in verse to the tales of the Decameron and the Heptameron in prose, except that the satirical motive is even more strongly marked, and that touches of romantic sentiment are rarer. This element of romance, however, appears abundantly in the long prose versions of the Arthurian and other legends, and we have a certain number of short prose stories of the 13th and 14th centuries, of which the most famous is that of Aucassin et Nicolette. These latter, however, are rather short romances than distinct prose tales of our kind. Of that kind, the first famous book in French, and the only famous book, besides the one before us, is the Sainte Nouvelle Nouvelle. The authorship of this book is very uncertain. 
It purports to be a collection of stories told by different persons of the society of Louis XI, when he was but Dauphin, and was in exile in Flanders under the protection of the Duke of Burgundy. But it has of late years been very generally assigned, though on rather slender grounds of probability and none of positive evidence, to Anthony de la Salle, the best French prose writer of the fifteenth century, except Comines, and one on whom, with an odd unanimity, conjectural criticism has bestowed, besides his acknowledged romance of late chivalrous society, Petit Jean de Saintré, a work which itself has some affinities with the class of story before us, not only the Sans Nouvelles Nouvelles, but the famous satirical treatise of the Quinze Joies du Mariage, and the still more famous farce of Patelin. Some of the Nouvelles, moreover, have been putatively fathered on Louis XI himself, in which case the royal house of France would boast of two distinguished tale-tellers instead of one. However this may be, they all display the somewhat hard and grim, but keen and practical humour which seems to have distinguished that prince, which was a characteristic of French thought and temper at the time, and which perhaps arose with the misfortunes and hardships of the Hundred Years' War. The stories are decidedly amusing, with a considerably greater, though also a much ruder, vis comica than that of the heptameron and they are told in a style unadorned indeed and somewhat dry lacking the simplicity of the older french and not yet attaining to the graces of the newer but forcible distinct and sculpturesque if not picturesque a great license of subject and language an enjoyment of practical jokes of the roughest not to say the most cruel character prevail throughout and there is hardly a touch of anything like romance, the tales alternating between jests as broad as those of the Reeves and Miller's tales in Chaucer, themselves exactly corresponding to Vers Fabliaux, of which the Sans Nouvelles are exact prose counterparts and perhaps prose versions, and examples of what has been called the humour of the stick, which sometimes trenches hard upon the humour of the gallows and the torture chamber, these characteristics have made the sans nouvelles nouvelles no great favourites of late, but their unpopularity is somewhat undeserved. For all their coarseness, there is much genuine comedy in them, and if the prettiness of romantic and literary dressing up is absent from them, so likewise is the insincerity thereof. They make one of the most considerable prose books of what may be called middle French literature, and they had much influence on the books that followed especially on this of Margaret's. Indeed, one of the few examples to be found between the two, the Grand Paragon de Nouvelle Nouvelle of Nicole de Troyes, 1535, obviously takes them for model. But Nicolas was a dull dog, and neither profited by his model, nor gave anyone else opportunity to profit by himself. Rabelais, the first book of whose Pantagruel anticipated the Paragon by three years, while the Gargantua coincided with it, was a great authority at the court of Margaret's brother Francis, dedicated one of the books, the third, of Pantagruel to her before her death, in high-flown language, as Esprit abstrait, ravi et extatique, and must certainly have been familiar reading of hers, and of all the ladies and gentlemen, literary and fashionable, of her court, but there is little resemblance to be found in his style and hers, the short stories which Master Francis scatters about his longer work are, indeed, models of narration, 
but his whole tone of thought and manner of treatment are altogether alien from those of the ravished spirit whom he praises. His deliberate coarseness is not more different from her deliberate delicacy than his intensely practical spirit from her high-flown romanticism, which makes one think of, and may have suggested, the court of La Quinte, and her mixture of devout and amatory quadlibitation from his cynical criticism and all-dissolving irony. But there was a contemporary of Rabelais who forms a kind of link between him and Margaret, whose work in part is very like the heptameron, and who has been thought to have had more than a hand in it. This was Bonaventure d'Esperier, a man whose history is as obscure as his works are interesting. Born in or about the year 1500, he committed suicide in 1544, either during a fit of insanity, or, as has been thought more likely, in order to escape the danger of the persecution which, in the last years of the reign of Francis, threatened the unorthodox, and which Margaret, who had more than once warded it off from them, was then powerless to avert. Desperier, to speak the truth, was in far more danger of the stake than most of his friends. The infidelity of Rabelais is a matter of inference only, and some critics, among whom the present writer ranks himself, see in his daring ridicule of existing abuses nothing inconsistent with a perfectly sound, if liberally conditioned, orthodoxy. Desperier, like Rabelais, was a Lucianist, but his modernizing of Lucian, the remarkable book called Symbalum Mundi, though pretending to deal with ancient mythology, has an almost unmistakable reference to revealed religion. It is not, however, by this work or by this side of his character at all that Desperier is brought into connection with the work of Margaret, who, if learned and liberal, and sometimes tending to the new ideas in religion, was always devout and always orthodox in fundamentals. Besides the Symbalum Mundi, he has left a curious book, not published, like the Heptameron itself, till long after his own death, and entitled Nouvelles Recreations et Joyeux de Vie. The tales of which it consists are for the most part very short, some being rather sketches or outlines of tales than actually worked-out stories, so that, although there are no less than a hundred and twenty-nine of them, the whole book is probably not half the bulk of the Heptameron itself. But they are extremely well written, and the specially interesting thing about them is that in them there appears, and appears for the first time, unless we take the Heptameron itself as earlier, which is contrary to all probability, the singular, and at any rate to some persons, very attractive mixture of sentiment and satire, of learning and the love of refined society, of joint devotion to heavenly and earthly love, of voluptuous enjoyment of the present, blended and shadowed with the sense of the night that cometh, which delights us in the prose of the Heptameron, and in the verse not only of all the playad poets in France, but of Spencer, Don, and some of their followers in England. The scale of the stories, which are sometimes mere anecdotes, is so small, the room for miscellaneous discourse in them is so scanty, and the absence of any connecting links, such as those of Margaret's own plan, checks the expression of personal feeling so much that it is only occasionally that this cast of thought can be perceived. But it is there, and its presence is an important element in determining the question of the exact authorship of the Tameron itself. 
it can hardly be said that, except translations from the Italian, of which the close intercourse between France and Italy in the days of the later Valois produced many, Margaret had many other examples before her. For such a book as the Propos Rustique of Noël du Fer, though published before her death, is not likely to have exercised any influence over her, and most other books of the kind are later than her own. One such, for despite its bizarre title and its distinct intention of attacking the Roman Church, Henri Estienne's Apologie pour Hérodote is really a collection of stories, deserves mention, not because of its influence upon the Queen of Navarre, but because of the Queen of Navarre's influence upon it. Estienne is constantly quoting the Tamaron, and though to a certain extent the inveteracy with which the friars are attacked here must have given the book a special attraction for him, two things might be gathered from his quotations and attributions. The first is that the book was a very popular one, the second that there was no doubt among well-informed persons, of whom, and in whose company Estienne most certainly was, that the Heptameron was in more than name the work of its supposed author. From what went before it, Margaret could, and could not, borrow certain well-defined things. Models, both Italian and French, gave her the scheme of including a large number of short and curtly but not skimpingly told stories in one general framework, and of subdividing them into groups dealing more or less with the same subject or class of subject. She had also in her predecessors the example of drawing largely on that perennial and somewhat facile source of laughter, the putting together of incidents and phrases which even by those who laugh at them are regarded as indecorous but of this expedient she availed herself rather less than any of her forerunners. She had further the example of a generally satirical intent, but here too she was not content merely to follow, and her satire is, for the most part, limited to the corruptions and abuses of the monastic orders. It can hardly be said that any of the other stock subjects, lawyers, doctors, citizens, even husbands, for she is less satirical on marriage than ecclesiastic of love, are dealt with much by her. She found also in some, but chiefly in older books of the Chartier and still earlier traditions, and rather in Italian than in French, a certain strain of romance proper and of adventure, but of this also she availed herself but rarely. What she did not find in any example, unless, and then but partially, in the example of her own servant Bonaventure d'Esperier, was first the interweaving of a great deal not merely of formal religious exercise, but of positive religious devotion in her work, and secondly the infusing into it of the peculiar Renaissance contrast so often to be noticed of love and death, passion and piety, voluptuous enjoyment and sombre anticipation. But it is now time to say a little more about the personality and work of this lady, whose name all this time we have been using freely and who was indeed a very notable person, quite independently of her literary work. Nor was she in literature by any means an unnotable one, quite independently of the collection of unfinished stories which, after receiving at its first posthumous publication the not particularly appropriate title of Les Amants Fortunés, was more fortunately renamed, albeit by something of a bull, for there is the beginning of an eighth day, as well as the full complement of the seven, the Heptameron. 
few ladies have been known in history by more and more confusing titles than the author of the heptameron the confusion arising partly from the fact that she had a niece and a great-niece of the same charming christian name as herself the second margaret de valois the most appropriate name of all three as it was theirs by family right was the daughter of francis i the patroness of ronsard and somewhat late in life the wife of the duke of savoy a marriage which as the bride carried with her a dowry of territory was not popular and brought some coarse jests on her not much is said of her personal appearance after her infancy but she inherited her aunt's literary tastes if not her literary powers and gave ronsard powerful support in his early days the third was the daughter of henry the second the grosse margot of her brother henry the third the reine margot of duman novel the idol of brantome the first wife of henry the fourth the beloved of guise la mole and a long succession of gallants the rival of her sister-in-law mary stuart not in misfortunes but as the most beautiful gracious learned accomplished and amiable of the ladies of her time this margaret would have been an almost perfect heroine of romance for she had every good quality except chastity if she had not unluckily lived rather too long her great-aunt our present subject was not the equal of her great-niece in beauty her portraits being rendered uncomely by a portentously long nose longer even than mrs Citus's, and by a very curious expression of the eyes going near to slyness but the face is one which can be imagined as much more beautiful than it seems in the not very attractive portraiture of the time and her actual attractions are attested by her contemporaries with something more than the homage to order which literary men have never failed to pay to ladies who are patronesses of letters besides margaret of valois she is known as margaret of angouleme from her place of birth and her father's title margaret of alençon from the fief of her first husband margaret of navarre of which country like her grandniece she was queen by her second marriage with henri de Bray, and even margaret of orleans as belonging to the orleans branch of the royal house she was not like her nieces margaret of france as her father never reigned and brantome probably denies her the title but others sometimes give it when it is necessary to call her anything besides the simple margaret Angoulême is at once the most appropriate and the most distinctive designation. She was born on the 11th or 12th of April 1492, her father being Charles, Count of Angoulême, and her mother Louise of Savoy. She was their eldest child, and two years older than her brother, the future King Francis. According to, and even in excess of, the custom of the age, she received a very learned education, acquiring not merely the three tongues french italian and spanish which were all in common use at the french court during her time but latin and even a little greek and a little hebrew she lived in the provinces both before and after her marriage in fifteen o nine to her relation charles duke of alencon who was older than herself by three years and though a fair soldier and an inoffensive person was apparently of little talents and not particularly amiable the accession of her brother to the throne opened a much more brilliant career to her she and her mother jointly exercised great influence over francis 
and the Duchess of Alençon, to whom her brother shortly afterwards gave Berry, was for many years one of the most influential persons in the kingdom, using her influence almost invariably for good. Her husband died soon after Pavia, and in the same year, September 1525, she undertook a journey to Spain on behalf of her captive brother. This journey, with some expressions in her letters and in Brantome, has been wrested by some critics in order to prove that her affection for Francis was warmer than it ought to have been, an imputation wanton in both senses of the word. She was sought in marriage by, or offered in marriage to, diverse distinguished persons during her widowhood, and this was also the time of her principal diplomatic exercise, an office for which, odd as it now seems for a woman, she had, like her mother, like her niece Catherine of Medicis, like her namesake, Margaret of Parma, and like other ladies of the age, a very considerable aptitude and reputation. When she at last married, the match was not a brilliant one, though it proved, contrary to immediate probability, to be the source of the last and the most glorious branch of the royal dynasty of France. The bridegroom bore indeed the title of King of Navarre, and possessed Béarn, but his kingdom had long been in Spanish hands, and but for his wife's dowry of Alençon and appanage of Berry, to which Francis had added Armagnac and a large pension, he would have been but a lackland. Furthermore, he was eleven years younger than herself, and it is at least insinuated that the affection, if there was any, was chiefly on her side. At any rate, this earlier Henry of Navarre seems to have had not a few of the characteristics of his grandson, together with a violence and brutality which, to do the fair galant justice, formed no part of his character. The only son of the marriage died young, and the girl, Jane d'Albret, mother of the great Bourbon race of the next two centuries, was taken away from her parents by reasons of state for a time. The domestic life of Margaret, however, concerns us but little, except in one way. Her husband disliked administration, and she was the principal ruler in their rather extensive estates or dominions. Moreover, she was able, at her quasi-court, to extend the literary coteries which she had already begun to form at Paris. The patronage to men of letters, for which her brother is famous, was certainly more due to her than to himself, and to her also was due the partial toleration of religious liberty which for a time distinguished his reign. It was not till her influence was weakened that intolerance prevailed, and she was able even then for a time to save Marot and other distinguished persons from persecution. It is rather a moot point how far she inclined to the reformed doctrines, properly so called. Her letters, his serious and poetical work, and even the heptameron itself, show a fervently pietistic spirit and occasionally seem to testify to a distinct inclination towards Protestantism, which is also positively attested by Brantome and others. But this Protestantism must have been, so far as it was consistent and definite at all, the Protestantism of Erasmus rather than of Luther, of Rabelais rather than of Calvin. She had a very strong objection to the coarseness, the vices, the idleness, the brutish ignorance of the cloister, she had aspirations after a more spiritual form of religion than the ordinary Catholicism of her day provided, and, as a strong politician, she may have had something of that Gallicanism which has always been well marked in some of the best Frenchmen, 
and which at one time nearly prevailed with her great-great-grandson, Louis the Fourteenth. But there is no doubt that, as her brother said to the fanatical Montmorency, she would always have been, and always was, of his religion, the religion of the state. The side of the Reformation which must have most appealed to her was neither its austere morals, nor its bare ritual, nor its doctrines, properly so called, but its spiritual pietism and its connection with profane learning and letters. For of literature, Margaret was an ardent devotee and a constant practitioner. Her best days were done by the time of her second marriage. After the king's return from Spain, persecution broke out, and Margaret's influence became more and more weak to stop it. As early as 1533, her own Miroir de l'Homme Pécheresse, then in a second edition, provoked the fanaticism of the Sorbonne, and the king had to interfere in person to protect his sister's work and herself from gross insult. The Medici marriage increased the persecuting tendency, and for a time there was even an attempt to suppress printing, and with it all that new literature which was the queen's delight. She was herself in some danger, but Francis had not sunk so low as to permit any actual attack to be made on her. Yet all the last years of her life were unhappy, though she continued to keep court at Nérac in Pau, to accompany her brother in his progresses, and, as we know from documents, to play Lady Bountiful over a wide area of France. Her husband appears to have been rather at variance with her, and her daughter, who married first, and in name only, the Duke of Cleves in 1540, and later, 1548, Anthony de Bourbon, was also not on cordial terms with her mother. By the date of this second marriage, Francis was dead, and though he had for many years been anything but wholly kind, Margaret's good days were now in truth done. Her nephew Henry left her in possession of her revenues, but does not seem to have been very affectionately disposed towards her, and even had she been inclined to attempt any recovery of influence, his wife and his mistress, Catherine de Medici and Diana of Poitiers, two women as different from Margaret as they were from one another, would certainly have prevented her from obtaining it. As a matter of fact, however, she had long been in ill health, and her brother's death seems to have dealt her the final stroke. She survived it two years, even as she had been born two years before him, and died on the 21st December 1549 at the castle of Odot, near Tarbes, having lived in almost complete retirement for a considerable time. Her husband is said to have regretted her dead more than he loved her living, and her literary admirers, such of them as death and exile had spared, were not ungrateful. Tombeaux, or collections of funeral verses, were not lacking, the first being in Latin, and oddly enough, nominally by three English sisters, Anne, Margaret, and Jane Seymour, nieces of Henry VIII's queen and Edward VI's mother, with learned persons like Dora, saint Marthe, and Baif. This was reissued in French and in a fuller form later. End of section 5